The sermon lesson comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of all the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Heron summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the gospel of the Lord. Our God, we need to hear your voice this morning, your words of hope, your words of healing, your words of comfort, your words of challenge, your words of promise, of love and grace and life. So would you show us your son who is your true word good news for us. In his name we pray. Amen. So we're still relatively at the beginning of a long journey through this gospel account that was written by Matthew, one of Jesus's original disciples. And we've said this is one of four different perspectives on the life of Jesus. And Matthew here is 
not writing just historical facts to try to present in a very cold and calculated way, but he is writing as one who has been personally transformed and changed by this person that he writes about. And his purpose in writing to his original audience and ultimately to us is not just to inform, but the purpose is to call for a response that What's written here is meant to do something in us, inside us, that can be made manifest in how we live. And And from the the very beginning, we're presented with something that runs against the very grain of our cultural moment. And so, for the past hundred years, you could say there's been a very big push against what's called a a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative has been described as an overarching story or storyline that gives context, meaning, and purpose to all of life. One story gives purpose, meaning, context, direction to, to all of life. But what there's been is there's been a movement towards an almost exclusive focus on our individual stories, what you might call some micro-narratives, with a focus on us to create an individual sense of identity and purpose, an individual sense of what's good and true and beautiful. But when you read the Bible and the Gospel of Matthew in particular, what we find is our individual stories are not minimized in any way. If anything, they are made more significant. But we see that our individual lives take place in a much bigger story, a much grander story that we all have to find our place in. This overarching story that does give context, meaning, purpose, direction to all of life. That is the story that Matthew is telling. And at the very center of it is going to be Jesus. And so this is the grand story that we're all born into, whether we like it or not. And it is a story about the relationship between God and His people. It is a story about good and evil. It's a story about the conflict that we are all called to choose where we line up on. And so today we're in this big chunk of Matthew. And as we go through, Matthew is a long book. And so some of the passages we look at will be much shorter. But today is going to be a very long passage. And we're not going to be able to address everything that's in it. As I was studying, there's just so many different directions we could go in. But there's a lot that we're not going to be able to touch on. But I I want to highlight some of the main point of what is going on this morning. And something that makes our passage this morning different than other parts of this gospel, other parts of the New Testament, is that Jesus doesn't do or say anything. And we're not told to do or say or believe anything. We're simply told a story, a story that we're to make sense of and what it means. And so one of the three pictures that that Matthew gives us at the beginning of his gospel, this is is one of those three, one of these three origin stories that's going to inform us about who Jesus is and what He's come to do and what it means for us to trust and really follow Him with all that we are. So here's what we have this morning. We have one child and two very different responses. 
So, I'm missing a page. This is not good, is it? This is terrible. Oh, I probably left it somewhere. This has never happened to me ever before. Okay, one child, two different responses. This is where I want to talk about magnets. <laughs> A lot of times when we were kids, played with magnets. And, and as, you were, as you were playing with magnets, sometimes when you would put it towards another magnet, that magnet would either be pulled in or it'd either be pushed away. As I was thinking about this passage in particular this morning, what you have is Jesus as this big magnet showing up on the scene. And what you have in the people that he is encountering is there is either a pull in towards this magnet or there is a push away from this magnet. And so the first thing in exploring where we're going this morning is I want to consider uh, this magnet, this child that Matthew talks about. And then we're going to look at those two responses. So if you go back to chapter 1, we were introduced to this, this big magnet, and he was described as the Messiah, this long-awaited hope. You remember he was described as the son of Abraham, as the son of David. And what Matthew is trying to do there is not saying that he's important because of these two characters, but God had made promises to Abraham and to David that from their lineage, there would come someone who would be like these floodgates by which the world would experience God's grace and power and love in a way like never before. That was the first chapter. The second chapter, which was last week, we looked at the names given to this child. So the name given was Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And we saw how, how in this child, God is plunging himself into the utter brokenness of humanity to be with us and to be for us. Then we looked at the specific child that God said this child is going to be named Jesus or Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. So already you see this story building up of this magnet is, is good news. That's why it is the gospel according to Matthew. So what we have is reason for celebration, anticipation. And, and it comes more even into this third chapter. This good news just continues as we are, in, we are introduced into this shepherd king. One of the things that we're going to see throughout Matthew's gospel that he does more than any other gospel writer is he's going to quote again and again from the Old Testament. You're going to see a lot of phrases like, so it's fulfilled or it was written. And what he's trying to say is everything in our history has been building up like this massive tidal wave pointing to Jesus that is going to break beautifully on humanity. Instead of bringing destruction, it is going to bring healing and hope and life. And so we're introduced into this where we say from this little town of Bethlehem, this seemingly insignificant lowest of places, there's going to become a ruler who's going to shepherd his people for their good. The image of, of shepherding and sheep is used all throughout Scripture. It attempts to give a picture of who God is and who we are as well. 
And there's a lot that could be said about sheep, but one of the most prominent themes that is brought out in Scripture and in real life is their proneness to wander. Um, this is, um, there was a story about 20 years ago of a news account. It was in eastern Turkey, and some, a group of shepherds uh, were not watching their flocks. Uh, they were just enjoying breakfast uh, together, and they uh, didn't think that their sheep could get in that much trouble. And there was a ravine not too far away, about uh, 50 feet, that all of a sudden the sheep began to go over together. And so not one, not two, not ten, but around 1,500 sheep just over this edge. Uh, the first 400 died, but they made such... This sounds bad. <laughs> they started to pile up, and sheep are fluffy. And so the other 1,100 just are still alive. They just landed on the others. Um, that's strange. It's easy to laugh because we're not sheep. Um, and it's kind of so out, far out there, but it captures some of what the Bible's talking about of the human struggle, of this temptation of humanity just hurting not towards God, but away from Him into all sorts of danger. And so when... When Matthew here highlights this shepherd king that has come, that is good news because in sheep's defensivelessness and their directionlessness, uh, here's a shepherd who has come to lead his people to life. And so here we read, even if you go back to the Micah passage, it's talking about in lowly Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. A shepherd has come. And Matthew is heralding this good news. But here's what we're going to see in this magnet. Not everyone is going to respond to this as good news. The shepherd king has shown up and some are going to be irresistibly drawn to him and some are going to be pushed away and want nothing to do with him. And so here I want to highlight the two different responses that we see here in Matthew chapter 2. And they come from King Herod and from this group called the Magi. And so I want to give a little bit of background information. Uh, a lot of times we hear about the Magi at Christmas, and we think about them as kind of gathered around uh, the manger with Jesus. But what took place here was likely months later, uh, if not even over a year later. And, and uh, we don't know much about them. They're said to come from the east, likely from uh, Babylon. They were often advisors that would advise the king. These in particular are said to watch the stars, which is an interesting detail because they would not have been respected in any way in Israel's culture. But here we see God working outside even of the normal means to bring about the redemption of our world. So here they are at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. It gives us a hint of what the rest of Matthew's Gospel is going to be about and how he's going to include the unexpected here. 
King Herod, on the other hand, we know a lot about him. There's a lot of historical data and accounts, especially from the historian Josephus. And so he was not in the true lineage of kings, and that's going to be important. He ruled under the Rome, uh, under Rome, and he he didn't fight against that like most of the other Jews in his day. He saw it as an opportunity for him to push his power and his rule forward. He's known for a lot of the, the big works he did, like reconstructing the, the second temple, expanding it, but he's also known for uh, his violence against those who opposed him. So there were many different predecessors with their supporters who he put to death. And if you think you have a difficult family situation with in-laws um, and children, uh, Herod put his brother-in-law to death, his mother-in-law to death, his wife to death. And it, it, the book, it said his favorite wife. I don't know. <laughs> so he put his favorite wife to death. And he put his three oldest sons to death as well. All because he wanted to preserve his own rule and his own life. And so into both of these people's lives comes this little child. And their responses to this child could not have been different. So I want you to consider the Magi's response. What we see from right at the beginning is there was anticipation. There was watchfulness. There was waiting. And then when they saw signs that this person who they had been waiting for had been born, they traveled. There's estimates that they traveled as far as 900 miles to see this child. They didn't just hop on a plane and say, uh, take me to Bethlehem or take me to Jerusalem. They didn't hop in their car. This was a long journey. It's about the same distance from here to New York City. It's not something you take overnight. Uh, one of my sons the other day, we were, near, we were up in the kind of Blue Ridge Mountains where the Appalachian Trail kind of gets, gets started, and he was asking about like how long the trail is, and I was explaining, and how long it takes to, to hike it. And he asked the question, why would somebody do that? <laughs> um, why would somebody travel that far on foot hiking? What are you looking for? What are you going after? And there's, there's great reasons for that, but it made me think of, of here. What, why would they travel that far to visit this child? What does that say? Not just about them, but what does it say about this child? And the distance and the time that it would take to get there. Here, the reason behind in their question, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And when they found him, they didn't just say, whew, okay, <laughs> uh, check, let's go back. It doesn't just say they were relieved. It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's something about this child that sparks that kind of, of work in their heart. And they fell down and worshipped Him. And it said they opened their treasures and they offered Him gifts. They let go of their treasures because here, right before them, was a different kind of treasure. A treasure they had, that they had traveled hundreds of miles and spent months. A treasure that they had waited for and looked for and a treasure that was now standing right before them. King Herod's response was very different. So he was among God's people. He 
would have known the Old Testament Scriptures. He should have been looking. He should have been waiting. He should have been searching. He should have been overjoyed to hear this news, but he was not looking. He was not waiting. There was anything but joy. So when he hears the question posed to him, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? He looks around and thinks, uh, the King of the Jews is right here. Last time I checked, there's only one. And so he's deeply troubled because Jesus is a threat to him and to his existence and to what he loves most that he is unwilling to let go of. And so then he seeks to eliminate this threat by leaving innocent children of his own people dead in his wake. So notice what we have here. This, this magnet, this Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord saves, the shepherd king, the source of hope and healing, and two radically different responses. One says, my treasure. One response says, not my treasure. One response says, my king. One response says, not my king. These two responses summarize every response that we're going to see in the Gospel of Matthew and every response that we have in our own lives. We may look at the Magi's response and say, well, I didn't respond that positively. We may look at Herod's response and say, well, I'm not, you know, if I'm opposed to Christianity, I'm not doing that. But what Matthew is telling us, what Matthew is showing us is that we live in a world and in a story in which there is no true neutrality. The choice, the inescapable choice before all of us is treasure or not my treasure. King or not my king. Our response is going to be like the Magi or like the Herod. With this grand story, there's no sidelines. We're all on the field, and this question is one that we all answer in some way, whether we like it or not. And, and especially appropriate to just a group of, of mostly believers within here. Uh, there is a tendency for us to say with our lips, my treasure and my king, but do our lives really reflect that? Is this child, is this Savior, is this God with us truly our treasure that we would be willing to let go of our inferior treasures to have Him? Is He truly our King? The one whose will we look to follow. The one who we look to give our lives to completely through and through. To whom we say we'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus later in Matthew's Gospel is going to say these incredibly challenging words. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. I think those words on anyone else's lips would be complete tyranny and craziness. Only the Son of God who created all of this and who's come to redeem us can, can say that because He knows the gravity and he knows his own heart in coming. John, one of the other disciples, 
describes Jesus' love in shepherding imagery as well, but he goes much more into depth in it than, than Matthew did. He records how Jesus, talking to his disciples, says, I have come. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full because I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. What happens next after Jesus says those words is John says that people picked up stones to try to kill him. And others there followed him to the point of their own death. I think about Peter, another disciple, who according to accounts, when he was being killed for his faith, he asked to be crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to die in the same manner that his Lord was. What drives someone to to say something like that or be willing to give up their own life in that way? It's only someone who who has come to this child and has experienced this child as treasure and as the King come to save us. Is that our hope? Is that our life? Is He our treasure? Is He our King? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for good news. You are a God of good news. You are a God who pursues. You are a God who saves. You are a God who calls. Would You help us to see the gift of Your Son as true treasure and His goodness as true kingship and help us to love Him and love You and follow You with all that we are. In Your name we pray. Amen.